to my knowledge, I've never spit on anybody, or so you can be right here close and I won't get you. Well, tonight we begin a challenge on Wednesday night. We're going to study a book called Zechariah. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. And I want to encourage you to get your Bible out and find it and read along with us tonight. If you need a Bible, hopefully you can find one under the seat in front of you. And you turn to Zechariah chapter 1, that's page 1091. So I'm not going to kid you, this is a mysterious book. This is a challenging book. I don't know of a lot of churches that take the time to study this book. I don't know of a lot of Christians that spend a lot of time in this book. But we're going to take a deep dive. I think it's worth the effort, and you're going to see that there's some wonderful things that we can learn and understand from the book of Zechariah. Father, I ask as we begin this journey that you would bless our time together. Lord, give us understanding. By your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word. And Lord, teach us about your plan. Those things that you want to accomplish. Bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is absolutely no way that we are going to make sense of this book unless we become familiar with the historical setting. Of this book. So I'm going to summarize a large part of Israel's history in three slides. You ready for that? A big chunk of Israel's history in three slides, and I'm going to show you right where this prophet priest, Zechariah, fits into the story. In 1043 BC, the nation of Israel in the land of Israel became a kingdom. They became a monarchy. And they were a united kingdom. And by that I mean all 12 tribes united together into one kingdom under one king. And the first king was Saul. Followed by King David. Followed by King Solomon, the United Kingdom. Now you should know that that was like the golden age of Israel's history. I mean, Israel was a world power at that time. They were on the map. They were successful. They were prosperous. They were safe. They lived in security. And most of this happening under King David and King Solomon the capital city of the kingdom was Jerusalem. Solomon had put this incredible temple unto God up right there in Jerusalem. Everyone knew of the kingdom of Israel. Everyone knew of the God of the kingdom of Israel. In fact, to this day, Jews look back on that united kingdom as one of the best stages in their history. 
And during that time, God made a promise to King David, a very important promise. It's known as the Davidic covenant. God gave this promise to David when David was reigning. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm just going to read it to you. To David, the Lord says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He went on to say to David, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So the promise is very clear. David, your kingdom will never end. A descendant from you will rise up and be on the throne of the kingdom of Israel that will never come to an end. It'll be like the golden age. Well, in 931 BC, a tragedy happened. There was a split in the kingdom. There was like a civil war. The United Kingdom became a divided kingdom. Ten tribes, the northern tribes, they formed their own kingdom. And in the Old Testament, they are referred to as the kingdom of Israel. And they had their own line and succession of kings. Two remaining tribes, the southern tribes... They formed their own kingdom. And they are referred to in the Old Testament as the kingdom of Judah. And they formed their own kings. Their own succession of kings that sat on the throne. Now for Judah, they kept the capital city of Jerusalem. And the temple in Jerusalem. And all the priesthood and all the Levitical activity. And you should know that the promise of the Messiah and the coming king followed all the kings coming here through Judah. But what a tragedy. They split. They divided. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel was a terrible uh, kingdom. They had terrible kings. They didn't have one good king. And they kept going downhill, and they were judged by God. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came down and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Destroyed them. Scattered all of them. Killed many, deported others. And you should know that those tribes today are even known as the lost tribes of Israel. Judah lasted longer, but they also became corrupt. They turned their backs on the Lord. God sent many prophets to warn them, to try to get them back on track, but they never fully came back to the Lord. And so they were judged in 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire was in charge of the world, and the king of Babylon was this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And he came down and destroyed the kingdom of Judah. And I mean he destroyed it. He leveled the city of Jerusalem. Destroyed all of the walls. Broke down the city. 
and completely destroyed Solomon's temple. Left Jerusalem a pile of rubble. Killed many of the Jews that were living there. And then a good number of Jews were deported. They were taken into exile. They went to Babylon. Guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the prophet Ezekiel. So great tragedy. And you should know that there has not been a kingdom of Israel on planet earth since 586 BC. There has not been a king reigning on a throne in Jerusalem over a kingdom of Israel since 586 BC. The world has been dominated by Gentile kingdoms and nations ever since. So it begs the question, what happened to the promise that God made to David? It's supposed to be a kingdom and a king that would reign forever. Well, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. There's still this new golden age for Israel, this new kingdom with a king that sits on the throne forever. That's still to come. Hasn't happened yet. Okay, so Israel's gone. Judah is taken captive. And they are outside of Jerusalem for about 70 years. And then right around 539 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire defeated Babylon. So you had a new world power. And these kings were a little more friendly to the Jews that had been taken captive. Kings like Darius and such. And so they began to actually allow Jews to go back to Jerusalem from Babylon. And allowed them to rebuild their temple, rebuild the city, and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And that's what took place in this last phase of this time of history. Now you should know, during that time period, three groups of Jews were allowed to return. The first group returned in 538 BC, and a guy by the name of Zerubbabel led that effort. He was the governor. They also had Another guy by the name of Joshua, who would be the high priest, he also returned to Jerusalem. And then these two very prominent prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the guy we're studying. Zechariah was actually born in the Babylonian captivity. He'd never been to Jerusalem. By the time he gets there, he's a young man. And he's seen it for the first time, and he's seen it as a pile of ruins. The next group of Jews that came back years later was led by Ezra. And then the third group that came back years later in 445 B.C. was led by Nehemiah. Now, how many of you have heard of Nehemiah? So Nehemiah comes back, and he builds the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so we are zeroing in on that first return 
to Jerusalem after the captivity. So again, let's the main players, Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, Haggai is a prophet, and then Zechariah the prophet. They're all the ones that came back. And it's very important to understand their main mission. Their main mission when they got back to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple. To get back to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord in the city of Jerusalem. So they were allowed back in 538 BC. They immediately began working on the temple. Two years later, the foundation was complete. Pretty good. They continued to work for a bit on the temple till about 534 BC. But in 534 BC, all work on the temple stopped. They stopped working on the temple. Now, why did they do that? Well, it was hard work. They were being oppressed by different enemies. And they started doing their own thing. They started becoming more interested in building their own houses, their own marketplaces, their own stuff. And they stopped building the temple. And the work of building the temple laid dormant for 16 years. 16 years. Eventually, God raised up Haggai and Zechariah as prophets. You following me? And their message, God's message to the people through those two prophets was essentially, get back to work. Start building up that temple again. And their messages would work. In 520 BC, they began to work on the temple. Four years later, the temple was finished. So, what you need to know about the book of Zechariah is that Zechariah speaks to the people in this phase where they've been delaying the work that they knew they needed to do. And these are his messages that he gives to the people to say, get back to work, rebuild the temple. Haggai gave the same message. Now, Haggai was more like a John the Baptist type. He was more direct. He just said, you losers, get back to work, right? Zechariah was a little more kind, or the way God used Zechariah was more kind. Through Zechariah, God told the people, listen, I got huge plans for Jerusalem. I got huge plans for the kingdom of Israel. So yeah, get back to work because you want to be a part of what God's doing. Okay, so let's look at the very first message that Zechariah gives to the people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. So it says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, that's the guy of Medo-Persia, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry. 
with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So basically, this first message from God through Zechariah is a call to action. It is a call to repentance. You've been back in the land. I graciously got you back in the land. You started the temple. You haven't done anything with the temple for several years. So get back to work. Repent and start working on the temple. And he says, don't be like your fathers. Remember your fathers, he says. They blew it. Now he's speaking of the leaders of the kingdom of Judah who ignored all of the prophets. They didn't believe it. They wouldn't turn to the Lord. They didn't think that they'd be judged. And then the Babylonians came along and judged them. When God warns, you take his warning seriously, right? And so what the Lord is saying to this group that's returned after the captivity is, look, you are standing in a pile of rubble of what used to be a glorious city, and that is the result of your forefathers disobedience. Don't be like that. Don't be like them. Get to work. Do what you know you're supposed to do. Okay, now I want you to see something really, really important that the Lord said to them in verse 3. Look at it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. I, I want you to see the Lord's heart. He says to his people, return to me. From God's perspective, it wasn't about doing all the work of rebuilding that temple. You know, God wasn't homeless. He didn't need a house. God's house is the universe, right? So he's not like upset that his house isn't being built. God is looking at the heart of his people. And he's saying to his people, I want your heart. I want to be priority in your life. I want to be first place. And see, rebuilding that temple was just symbolic of what was in their heart. Are they putting the Lord first? No, for 14 years, they're building their own places. They've forgotten the Lord. And the Lord says, come back. Return to me. And you know what? That's still true today. You know what? God is, God wants our hearts. You know, a lot of times we think of Christianity as work, work, work. We're doing all this stuff for God. And there's nothing wrong with work unless it takes the place of love and your heart. 
You know, Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment in the whole law? You remember the answer that he gave? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. That's what God wants. He wants you to love him with your heart, your mind, your soul. It's a love relationship. This story reminds me of uh, the letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. You remember that? The church in Ephesus was a busy, busy, awesome, growing church. You read, man, they were working hard. But you remember what Jesus said to them? I have this against you. What was it? You've left your first love. You've left your first love. Don't let that happen in your life, Christian. Don't get so busy serving God that you lose that, you know, just that simple connection with God. That heart that you have with him. And by the way, all the work that we do as Christians should spring from that heart. From that love. Okay. Exactly three months after Zechariah gave this first message, God gave him eight visions in one single night. And in fact, historians have narrowed that down to an exact date. On February 15th, 519 BC, Zechariah the prophet went to bed. And in the course of that evening, eight visions were given to him to share with the people. Now, these visions, again, I believe are very hopeful. In these visions, God is telling his people, I got big plans. Okay, so let's look at the first vision. Look at verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, notice how detailed that timing is, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo the prophet. And here it is. He says, I saw by night and behold a man riding on a red horse. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth." So they answered, the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the whole earth and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Okay, so he goes to bed and this first vision, he sees a man riding on a red horse and the red horse rides and comes to stop right in this hollow that's filled with myrtle. Trees. Now, myrtle trees are like evergreens. They're, you can't kill them. 
They just live forever, and they don't grow to be very tall. They grow to be about eight feet. So this man on a red horse ends up there, and an army, a lot of other horses of different colors, show up in that same place, and they have different riders. And I believe that it is a mighty, these are mighty warriors. In fact, I love in this picture here that the myrtle trees, which are eight feet, they're down there. So you think of these giant horses, giant men on the horses. And so Zachariah sees that and thinks, what did I have for dinner last night, right? Now he sees that and he says, what is this? Who are these? And verse 10, the answer, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So this is an army of angels. These are angelic warriors on horseback. And they've been roaming to and fro throughout the whole earth. Now, you notice in this chapter that God is referred to quite a bit as the Lord of hosts. Now, the Lord of hosts, that's a wonderful name for God. You know what it means? It means the commander of the angelic armies in heaven and the ones in operation on earth. Did you know that God has hundreds of thousands thousands of angels that do his bidding. And my brother and sister in Christ, I'm glad to tell you that those angels are still operating today and we're on their side. Isn't that really cool to know that? So you have this massive army of angels. They've been patrolling planet Earth And they come with their report. Verse 11, we've walked to and fro throughout the earth. And behold, all the earth is resting quietly. What would you find out, angels? Well, we patrolled the whole earth and we found out that all the earth is resting quietly. Now that sounds like good news, doesn't it? Sounds like... There's peace and tranquility on planet Earth. Yay, the Earth is all quiet. To us, it sounds like good news, but understand that to God, it was bad news. And you're going to see that God is angered by this report. Because you're going to see that what's being reported here is that all the Gentile nations on planet Earth are at ease. And they're resting quietly. And while all the Gentile nations are resting quietly, the Jewish people in Jerusalem are living under great distress and pressure because of all the Gentile nations that are living at ease. So the Lord is angry about that situation. And in fact, you'll see it very clearly. Verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, 
How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal, and I am exceedingly angry with those nations at ease. For I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. You see, God was angry with those nations at ease. Now, here's the deal. He says, at first, I was a little angry. He was angry with his own people. And so he raised up Gentile nations to come and take them captive, and they were held in captivity for 70 years. But those Gentile nations were exceedingly wicked and harsh with God's people. And they would continue to be so. And so now the Lord says, I'm exceedingly angry with them. And then he makes this incredible promise. Look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. Now, gang, that is a remarkable prophecy. Those are incredible promises that God made to the nation. He says, I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My people will dwell in Jerusalem according to mercy. They won't be judged anymore. He says, my house shall be built in it. Yep, the temple's going to be rebuilt. He says, the city of Jerusalem will be built again because the surveyor's line will be able to measure. My city will be built. In verse 17, he says, My city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion. I will again choose Jerusalem. Big time promises. Those Gentile nations who are ease hurting my people, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to take care of my nation. Now, if you're one of those Jews who's returned back, and you've stopped building the temple, but you get this vision and this message from Zechariah, you're going to be stoked. You're going to be ready to rebuild. Okay. Right here, right now, is a very good time to talk about some very important principles concerning Old Testament prophecy. If you are going to understand Old Testament prophecy, then you need to understand these principles. And one of the best illustrations to explain Old Testament prophecy is this. I love this. Anybody here wear bifocals? 
I'm wearing some right now. So you have a section in your eyeglasses that enables you to see far. And then you have that section that enables you to see up close. Old Testament prophecy is like this. In a lot of the Old Testament prophecy, there's a near fulfillment. And then there's a distant fulfillment. So there's a short-term fulfillment of a prophecy. And then there's a long-term fulfillment for the same prophecy. In fact, you will find some prophecies in the Old Testament that actually have a double fulfillment. There's a prophecy that's given... And you can see how it was fulfilled in Old Testament history. But then you can also see to a time in the future where it's going to be fulfilled again to a greater degree. And you have exactly this going on in verses 16 and 17. So God says, I'm going to build my house. And I'm going to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Well, what happened? They rebuilt the temple. And Nehemiah comes along, and they rebuild the walls and the city. So that's a fulfillment to the the prophecy, short term. But understand this, that temple that they rebuilt never even closely approached the glory of Solomon's temple. And guess what happened? Years later, King Herod comes along and he kind of rebuilds and refurbishes that temple and makes it really beautiful in the days of Christ. And Jerusalem is rebuilt. But eventually, the Roman Empire comes along and destroys that temple in 70 AD, kicks all of the Jews out. Now, if you go to Israel today, if you go to Jerusalem today, the old city of Jerusalem, guess what? There's no temple. Now, there's a temple mount, and it's really cool to walk around on the temple mount. I've done it several times. But there's no temple. There's going to be a temple. And Jerusalem is going to become a greater city than it is now. And all the rest of the details of this promise. My cities will spread out in prosperity. My people will be in the city in mercy, no longer judged. In other words, it's a a return to the golden age. The coming kingdom. And I believe the Bible clearly teaches that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, he will set up that kingdom. And a 1,000 year reign of Christ on earth in Jerusalem as the descendant from David on a kingdom that lasts forever. So you got short term and you got long term. And you will see that in almost every Old Testament prophecy. Now I want to show you another chart. A guy by the name of Glarence Larkin came up with this chart and you're not going to see all the details and by the way I'm going to have PowerPoint posted at our website.
But this is an absolutely brilliant chart. Okay? This, this is an attempt to show you how the Old Testament prophets saw things. So here's the Old Testament prophets over there. And they're getting prophecies. All they saw were peaks. So they saw lots of things about the first coming of Christ. And they saw lots of things about the second coming of Christ. And of course, they had all those promises in the Old Testament concerning that wonderful kingdom that's going to come. They even saw things about the new heaven and the new earth. So prophets saw that. Now, us Christians, here's what's really cool for us. The whole Bible's been done. So we look at it all from the side. You see that? So we see the valleys. Here's the first coming of Christ, second coming of Christ. What happened here in this valley? Well, that's the church age, and it's been happening for 2,000 years. Do you realize that the prophets had no idea about a church? The Old Testament prophets didn't see the church age. And in the New Testament, the church is specifically called a mystery. A mystery that at one point was hidden from the Old Testament prophets, but has now been made known to us as Christians. And then they don't see a lot about what goes on in the millennial, or at least how it connects with the church age. But we see all that. So you need to understand, whenever you read the Old Testament prophets, they're seeing peaks. And there are times when they see the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, and they give a prophecy that combines them together. I want to give you a great example of that. Every Christmas, Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. How many of you get a Christmas card every year that has that on it? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder? And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his what? Government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even how long? Forever. Do you see how both advents of Christ have been smashed? Together in one prophecy. So the Old Testament prophets, they saw the first coming. They saw the second coming. But they didn't see the valley between. And you need, to know, you need to recognize that when you're studying scripture. Okay, so when Jesus comes around and, you know, there's thought that he might be Messiah. Everyone expected him to bring the kingdom. Right? Usher in the golden age. That's what, they were looking for a political kingdom. The Jewish leaders and experts of the law. See, in their thinking, that's all they saw. They missed the suffering Messiah part. Which, by the way, is there clearly in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah 53, read Psalm 22. So it's very important to understand that. I want to show you one more chart. This is the four prophetic 
perspectives. Now, this is speaking of Old Testament prophets. Whenever you see an Old Testament prophet given a prophecy, there's four points. There's four perspectives. They could be speaking about something in their own time. Or they could be speaking about something concerning the captivity and the restoration. Now, this would mean the prophets before the captivity. Zechariah didn't have anything to do with that. Zechariah is after the captivity and the restoration, right? But a lot of the prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, they were prophesying before the captivity even took place. And so there's a lot of prophecies concerning that. And then they speak of Christ. They're always giving prophecies concerning the Messiah and first and second coming. And then they give prophecies concerning the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ that's coming, and then the new heavens and the new earth. So what perspective did we just read? There was a fulfillment in the short term, right? But it also, whoa, there's going to be a long-term fulfillment. With me. Really, really important to understand this as you study Old Testament prophecy. And it's a little tricky, but you'll get it. You'll really will. Okay, we have time tonight for one more vision. Look at verse 18, and this is a fascinating one. Verse 18, then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. Now, I'm, I, I'm convinced I, thought I, I would have probably thought I had bad anchovies on a pizza had I seen that one. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Okay, he sees these four horns. Now, these are horns that, like on an animal's head. So in your dream, you got these four horns. And, and, and horns, well-known symbol in the Bible of authority, of government, of empires, of nations. And then he sees four craftsmen. Now, in the Hebrew, this speaks of tough, tough workmen. Workmen who are skilled in wood, stone, and metal. I want you to think of this giant, burly, angelic lumberjack carrying around a chainsaw and power tools. So in this dream... They, he sees four of those guys come and just get rid of the four horns. Just chop them down. Take them out. Get rid of them. I wonder if he wasn't even a little bloody in that vision. Something very graphic. 
Okay, so what in the world is going on here? And, and Zechariah says, what are these four horns? And the answer are, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Those four horns represent four powers that have come against Israel. And I believe specifically they represent Gentile kingdoms, Gentile empires throughout history that have scattered Israel. Okay, so you say, well, you know, where do you get that? And which Gentile nations, which Gentile empires are we talking about? Well, you're not going to find it from Zechariah. For that, we're going to need to remember some very specific prophecies that were given to Daniel, the prophet. And remember, Daniel was taken into captivity, and he lived in Babylon. And he was given some incredible prophecies. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in his dream, he sees this giant statue. And there's four sections on the statue. A golden head, silver chest and arms, bronze torso and thighs, silver legs, or I'm sorry, iron legs mixed with clay in the feet. Notice four sections, four horns. So Daniel is told about what each one of these things means. In Daniel chapter 7, he's given a vision of four beasts that come on the scene. The first beast is a winged lion. The second beast is a bear with ribs in his jaws. This guy likes barbecue, right? He's got the ribs. The third beast is a four-headed leopard with wings. And the fourth beast is this monster that nobody even knows, that nobody's really even seen. It's just this hideous beast that has iron teeth. Four sections on the statue, four beasts, four horns. Now in Daniel... He's told those four metals, those four beasts represent four successive Gentile kingdoms that have been on planet Earth and have given a hard time to Israel. And you find out that the gold head and the winged lion represent Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon in power from 605 to 539 B.C. Chest of silver, the bear with the ribs, represents the Medo-Persian Empire in power after Babylon from 539 to 331 B.C. The bronze and the four-headed leopard with rings represents the Grecian Empire from 331 to 168 B.C. And by the way, it is so absolutely specific. 
You know, if the Greek empire was headed up by, who was the guy that started it? Alexander the Great. I mean, he conquered the whole world for Greece. He died young. And his kingdom was divided up among four rulers and the four-headed leopard. Perfect. The iron legs, this crazy beast that nobody's ever seen, well, that represents the Roman Empire that was in power from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. All of those kingdoms succeeded one another. Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, Rome. They were all hostile towards Israel. They've always, they were in charge of everything. Israel never got the kingdom back. The Bible also teaches, and I guess I'll go back, that these feet here, iron mixed with clay, that in, in the last days there's going to be like a revived Roman Empire that comes on the scene. There's a final kingdom of man coming, and it will have elements of all of these other kingdoms. And of course there will be a pagan king that will rule over that final world government, and that guy is going to be the Antichrist, the beast. So all the different ingredients of man-made kingdom and power will be a part. Okay, so here's the good news. Those burly lumberjacks. They come in and they take out those kingdoms, right? And the story of Daniel, Daniel, it's an epic concluding. I love this. So here you have the statue of man, all these kingdoms. And in, in Daniel's vision, a rock comes out of the heaven, hits the statue. The whole statue pulverizes, signifying the kingdom of man completely gone. And then that stone grows. And it covers the whole world. And it represents the kingdom of God that's coming. And again, I think it would point to the second coming of Christ. And that when he comes, the kingdom of man will finally be destroyed. And you know what? The kingdom of man needs to die. Because the kingdom of man is wicked. Jesus will come. He will set up his kingdom. And he will reign and he will rule. And he will be on that throne that lasts forever. Connected to David. Connected to the kingdom of Israel. And so again, you're, the, you're those Jews there in Jerusalem standing on that pile of, of rubble. And you get this. Hey, look. Yeah. The horns are tough. But they're going down. And I have a big plan for you and your people. So get to work. So understand, if you want to have something that, that, that makes you feel good about believing the Bible and believing prophecy and believing Christianity, look no further 
my friend, than the state of Israel. Please understand that. The nation of Israel is a miracle of God. In fact, we mentioned those myrtle trees. Those myrtle trees are symbolic of Israel. It's a small nation, but you can't kill it. It just lives. And think about what God has done with Israel over the ages. That, and all that's come against them. And that for the last 2,000 years, they've been scattered all over planet Earth. And yet, they retain their heritage. They retain their Torah. They retain the Hebrew language. And in 1948, are you kidding me? God brought them back to their homeland? And a brand new state was born? The nation of Israel, a state in the land? With the capital city of Jerusalem? And you can see how all of these threads of, of prophecy concerning the restoration of Israel, that are, they're, even, they're, they're being fulfilled in our day and age. Man, if you need proof for Christianity, for the validity of the Bible, just think of Israel. And it's also a wonderful thing to study prophecy because prophecy teaches us that God keeps his promises. When he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. And by the way, in the church age, he makes a lot of promises to us as Christians. And he's going to keep it. So you can trust him. And then don't forget, in every age, Old Testament, New Testament, God's heart has been that we love him with our hearts. And that we respond to him. That we live in relationship with him. And if you're a Christian here tonight and maybe life has gotten real busy and you've kind of forgot or, or maybe you're real busy doing a lot of church work. But don't ever lose your first love. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never turned to God. You've never, you didn't know you could have a relationship with him. Well, you can. And that's what he wants. Let's close. Bow your heads with me. Father, as we close, one thing for sure, you're in charge. You're in charge of all of history. You have a plan. You have a goal. Nothing will thwart your purpose. And when you make a promise, you're going to keep it. And Lord, it's just good to know that you sit on the throne. You're in charge. And Lord, no matter what we see, no matter what our perspective might be, we can trust you. We can trust you. 
And so, Lord, we can trust you with all the crazy things that might be happening in our lives right now. And we can bring those to you. And Lord, tonight we bring those to you. And we also bring our hearts. Our hearts. Because that's what you really want, our heart. Lord, I want to pray for anyone here tonight who has not received you. Not entered into a proper relationship with you. Maybe that's you. You want to make sure you're in a right relationship with God. Well, you need to put your faith in Christ Jesus. Who died on the cross for you and rose again that third day. He paid for all of your sins. And one day he's coming again and he's setting up that golden age kingdom. Before that takes place, you need him to be your savior. So I want to invite you to receive him as your Lord and Savior right now. If that's you, pray this prayer with me, just in the quietness of your heart. You say, Lord, I give you my heart. Take my heart. Take my life. Save me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. And rising again. I'm a sinner and I need all my sins to be forgiven. Wash them all away. Make me a child in your kingdom. Child in your family. Take control. Be in charge. Help me to follow you. Amen.